Let's pray. Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to continue to be working in our hearts. We thank you that you have been here and are meeting with us. And we do. We just we lay the burdens down. We come before a God who has told us that all things are possible with him. I invite every person to just have open hearts now that God, you would speak your word to us because your word sets your people free. It sets individuals free. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. There's a a number of of myths that we've been looking at in this week. We're looking at this myth that it takes two to have a good relationship. And so I thought I'd start out with a pop quiz on some of those cultural assumptions, just other cultural assumptions that we have, such as the customer is always right. True or false? Well, I agree. Um, A couple years ago, I was actually on a plane and it was uh, making a connection through St. Louis. And this this fellow who was in a seat in front of me, just off a little bit, I think it was a middle seat, was complaining to the flight attendant and, and had the flight attendant's attention was as the flight was going. And then eventually a second flight attendant came to uh, her rescue as he was complaining about how small the compartments are, the, the seats. And, and at one point he actually got very loud and he said, I want to see the pilot. I'm thinking we're somewhere over Iowa. And you're having the, you know, and so people around, listen to this, started booing him. Actually affirming the fact the customer is not always right. How about this one? Keep your eye on the ball. Think about that for a second. It's a good thing when you talk about golf. Keep your eye on the ball. It's a good thing when you're standing at the plate in baseball when the curveball is coming. But it's not such a good thing when errantly a soccer ball or something curves out into the road and your little six-year-old without looking or anything starts running after the ball with his eye on the ball. How about this one? Winning is everything. I kind of like that one. Uh, Competitive juices going until one day I buried my wife in a game and um, it's not really a good one. It isn't everything. A good relationship takes two. Like other little proverbs, this statement has an element of truth. All these have some principle of truth to them in the right context. But it's an assumption often and a belief that I think keeps a lot of couples crippled in their relationship. I think it can be a belief that some couples can even use at a point to kind of say, I just can't stay in this. This is, you know, I've I've got to find someone else who's going to do the relationship with me. And, And I want to share with you as we get into this, we speak about some truths here in this message This isn't just about marriage. So some of you are kind of going, well, you know, check me out. This is about relationships in general. It could be about the relationship you're having with your parents and the difficulty there. It could be in a relationship with regard to a really good friend or someone at work. There is this common theme that if, you know, you're both not in it equally, it's not going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. But that is a myth. There are some great things, though, about a relationship where two people are really in it together and and, and working on it. In fact, I use this message of these verses for messages often in, in, in weddings. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. These verses talk about incredible benefits. There are two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. There's some really good things about having two. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. There are great advantages promised when two actually 
come together and work together and develop a relationship together. But I want to share with you this morning that not always does it depend on two. A good relationship, a good marriage doesn't always take two. The common assumption is that a good relationship would take these two committed equal beings. But, you know, that is, is blown out of the water when we think about our own relationship with God. Some of you are here. Some of you are beginning to search and, and wonder about God and may not even realize it. But it wasn't necessarily your great desire for God or your incredible pursuit for God or your ingenuity or your wisdom, or your humility or all these other things that really brought about the kind of relationship that you might be experiencing with God. If you're experiencing an intimate relationship, I think you kind of begin to understand at a certain point that your relationship with God isn't about two equally committed people, is it? In fact, when you really put your mind to it and understand it in God's Word, it actually began with one gracious, forgiving, committed being who, as the hymn says, sought you as a stranger. The Apostle Paul knew that in his life. There was a point when he was actually at odds with God, an enemy to God, and, and was, it was actually persecuting the people of God. And Romans 5 says it this way, and I like the way that it says it in the message. Jim Peterson says, Christ arrives on the, on, right on time to make this relationship happen. He knows when to step in. He knows how to kind of be the game changer in relationships. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get right with him. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves right with him. That could be true of the relationship you're in. A person far too weak, rebellious, is, is in their own world. If, we, if when we were at our worst, says Paul, we were put on friendly terms with God by his sacrificial death of his son, this unconditional love, now that we're at our best, just think about it. If that love has begun to transform your heart, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of the resurrection life. So here's the very first point. It's a pretty simple one. It's kind of what this message is founded on, and that is sometimes a good relationship only takes one. That's right. There are just many times that a good relationship only takes one. First John 4.19 sums up this truth. Let's say this together. We love because he first loved us. I sprung that into too fast. Let's say it together. We love because he first loved us. Through years of counseling, I've found that many people have believed this assumption, I think, to their detriment. And they've come in and, and through work and understanding, people begin to understand. But I hear often, like a woman will come in and say, well, you know, I really want to have a good marriage. I'll be meeting with her before even counseling, maybe in the hallway. I really want to have a good marriage. My husband doesn't, doesn't want to enter into counseling or get any kind of help or anything like that. Or I'll talk to a husband who will say, you know, I really, I really want an intimate relationship with my wife, but she won't for even a weekend Leave the kids with their parents or someone else. And it's this idea that, you know, I could have a good relationship if they were just participating. And underlying that assumption is that a good marriage is what I want, but my partner doesn't want it, therefore I can't have it. And there was a time I actually fell for that truth, but I don't do so so often. And I'm not saying every time that you begin to, as one, begin to initiate the steps to change the dance within your relationship, it always happens that the other person dances with you. But I have found more often than not that it does, in persistence and time through prayer, all these things we're going to talk about in a moment, it can bring about great changes in your relationship. 
And often it just takes one. If one is merely willing to say, I don't care what the other one necessarily does, and I say that in context of not abuse physically or, or other kind of behaviors, you need, there are things you, you have to do. But if one is merely willing to commit to personal growth, if just one of you will begin to change and, and actually understand your past patterns that have helped create the present reality, that's literally what happened when God stepped in. He, he said, here's some sinful patterns of selfishness that are just, they're not getting you what you want, and so let me begin to teach you. If one of you is willing to say, God, change me and fill me with your love, things can change. And again, Peter makes this point in his letter when he writes to couples who are struggling with marriage. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-4 through 4, and verse 6, Listen to these words that Peter says. Again, I'm reading from the message. The same goes for you, wives. He's talking now about these conflicts and struggles. He says, be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who, indifferent as they are to any words about God, they just really don't even have an interest in in being open to God. There are husbands who will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. And what matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewel you wear, the cut of your clothes. You know, all those things you try and do to bring about change, to make them change. He says, if you will begin to kind of look at your own inner beauty, the disposition of your own heart and attitudes and how you live your life, not just in relation to him, but before God. Cultivate that kind of inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. And he says, sometimes you'll find that you're Spouse will delight in it or that person in relationship with you. The same goes for you, husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honor them. Delight in them. He goes on to say, if you don't, men, it just frustrates your prayers. It, it creates all kinds of difficulty. In each case, Peter makes this important point. He's saying it's not about your rights as wives or your rights as husbands. It's about what your responsibility is. He draws it back to you, one can make a difference. Actually, if you begin to say, I'm going to commit to doing what I just need to do about myself, if you change your step, it may change the actual dance you're in. In fact, one of the truths about Scripture is this. And this is, this is true across anything. So this is, this is one of these million dollars when Jesus would say, here's the truth. You know, verily, verily. There is something very true about if you allow God to begin to recreate in your own heart the right kind of attitudes, all those things. When he begins to get a hold of the landscape within, it actually can change the landscape without. It actually can change things outside you. And marriage, when you look at this, is, is like a dance. Um, many of the books on marriage speak about it this way. They use this kind of as an analogy. In fact, there's a, one I read a long time ago that was helpful for me was The Dance of Intimacy. And, and here's a book I'd really recommend for you. It's called How We Love. And it's by Milan and Kay Yurkovich. It's fairly new. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. My daughter kind of was the one who said, Dad, you've got to read this. It kind of helps you understand a lot of stuff that, that I had understood through some marriage therapy and other things. And I read it, and it's really good. He, they, they, they illustrate much of the marriage around dance. 
And what happens often in marriage is that you come into marriage and you've learned, in a sense, some steps from your own family of origin, etc. You've learned them from whatever hurts or other things that are going on. And you come into this marriage dance and that, you know, we talked about that romance stage and you seem to be dancing really well. And at a certain point, the reality hits and the one person stepping on the other person's toe, the other person's jerking them around. And eventually you keep doing it and it just isn't satisfying. It's hurtful. It's painful. And you come to this place where you're forced to really consider what you should do about it. But all it does, you know, so often we think if you just change your step and we start focusing on the other person's dance. And if you will just if if just one of you will get serious before God and say, God, I'll be responsible for what's inside me and what I need to see. Would you begin to reveal to me the kind of things that I need to understand? Maybe it's choosing to forgive. Maybe it's learning that you don't be in, you're not in a passive place. So when you make decisions then you become resentful when you've made the decision, you can't do that game anymore. When you choose, you can't have resentment. Maybe it means saying no to, to, to your spouse's disrespectful behavior and putting up a boundary. This is this is just not going to be. Which creates some space which will probably get the person angry because they're, they're going to come after you because they're going to feel abandoned. But there are ways to be able to work. It, it's, I, I, can, I can just tell you from the depths of my being, from what I've experienced in my own relationship, what I've experienced from the truth of God's Word, that if you begin to kind of really say, okay, what do you want me to do, Lord? I like what Tim Keller says in his book, and, and another good book to read, The Meaning of Marriage. He writes, it works best if both spouses will do this, But let's just say you're the only one who decides, and this is what you decide. My selfishness is the thing I'm going to work on. That's your commitment. I'm going to work on my selfishness. And if one of you should begin to root it out as it is revealed to you, and you should do this regardless of what the other spouse is doing, he says, what will happen? Usually there's not much of an immediate response from the other side, but often over time, your attitude and behavior will begin to soften your partner. Doesn't it sound like First Peter? It takes one to stop the dance patterns you've learned. Here's what I often think that goes on in, in, in marriages when it comes to just thinking of it as a dance. What will happen is the first alternative is, is what you'll do is you'll start this dance. You'll start moving to places over a certain period of time. You start hitting the same step and it's painful and, and you, you begin to and it gets aggravated. And sometimes it can aggravate more things. And it, you know what I mean? And then so what you do is you stop, you step back and you kind of go, I just can't do this. And all of a sudden you reengage again. Nothing changes. And it's that subtle form of insanity that you think if I just stop for a second and then we go back into it, somehow something will change. And the reality is it doesn't change. And some people do this kind of dance all throughout their life and they learn how to live with one another and some never enter in what I call this stage of rest. I have met with couples who have been married 40, 50 years and they are still doing the same dance. They've just learned how to kind of live with the pain. It hurts. But what I found in some cases as they get older, as they get into the 40 to 50 years of marriage, they even get older, elderly in their mid-70s. They don't have those same kind of abilities to control their, what's going on and it becomes an incredibly painful marriage. So I just want to just tell you, I don't think that's a good alternative. There's a second alternative. A lot of people begin to start thinking, you know, they start doing this dance and they're doing this dance for a while. And as they're doing this dance, they start realizing, you know what, this doesn't work. You know, if I just maybe had a different dance partner. If I got a different dance partner, that would really make a difference. I just bring someone else into the dance because I obviously she can't dance or he can't dance. Doesn't care to dance. 
And so you go through this marriage situation, you start to experience it. And, and isn't it uncanny how all of a sudden this other dance partner at work or at school or wherever it might be shows up and emotionally they dance with you really well and you start wondering as the connection develops? That's another alternative. I find it interesting that when I did this uh, a message very similar to this a number of years ago on, on how dance, marriage is like dance, after I read this book, Dance of Intimacy, I decided what I would do on that Sunday morning. I, I, I knew of a couple who were amateur international ballroom dancers, and I had them do a dance up on stage, and they did this incredible, you know, you've seen those dances on those dance shows. And it was really kind of mesmerizing. They were really good. And they got done, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to do a quick interview with them. And I did this interview, and I, I asked them how dance mirrors marriage. And one of them began to share. He says, well, you know, one of the things I found is that I have these limitations. And one of the limitations that I I began to realize was in my back pivot when I was dancing. And I mean, I would have never seen it or noticed it, but they obviously did. And he said, when I would pivot, it would throw my partner off balance. And I I asked him, what if you didn't get in touch with that? What if you began to continue thinking it was your partner and their lack of balance, et cetera, that was causing the problem? He goes, I said, what would it have gone away? And he goes, no, in fact, he said, I even thought about getting a different dance partner and began to realize as we started working through this, that even if I brought another dance partner in because of that pivot, it would just show up there. And I thought that was really interesting when I'm doing this interview. And then all of a sudden she piped up and she goes, you know, really, I contributed to it, too, as well. And I said, what do you mean? You didn't do the pivot. Well, I was getting dragged and I was getting dragged and I was real passive and I didn't say anything. I never stopped the dance. I never said anything about it. I just went along for the ride which wasn't a real fun ride. And I asked them, how eventually did you, did you deal with this? And they said, we went to counseling. And I thought, oh, so you guys are married. And they go, no. And I said, so what are you doing to counseling? He said, well, we needed to somehow begin to get into our relational stuff so we could actually eventually get into what was going on with the dance. I said, really? I said, so you guys paid for marriage counseling? You're not even married? You're married to other people? Yeah. They were so intent on becoming better dancers that they were willing to do whatever they needed to do to be better dancers. And all I can say to couples, you, as you, you think about it, and this marriage that you have is such a gift, and this gift of the marriage creates families, and these families create more families, and it just goes down crescendoing from generation to generation. Wouldn't it be wise to do whatever you need to do to take the next step, whatever that step is for you? To bring about change. Often a good relationship doesn't just take one, but it takes many. And, and I say this because we live today with this illusion that, it, you know, this nuclear family can do this alone. We live with the ability, the mobility to move and to be independent and to live in our own little unit, a house or apartment or whatever it is that we're living in, and to begin to raise our families. And we think in some way that the family is to be alone and should have the resources to be able to create the kind of relationships that will sustain good marriages and families. And that's a lie. Listen to what it says in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 15, 22. Plans. Marriage is all a plan, isn't it? It was a plan to get together where you committed yourself to be able to love one another, to bring out the best in one another, so that when you can do this, you could also be the kind of parents that could raise kids that would do the same kind of thing, and they would grow into maturity. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Good marriage doesn't just take one. It often will take many. 
And Proverbs 20.18 says, make plans by seeking advice. You know, you don't have to live in this little nuclear family on your own and think that somehow you've got to figure it out. That is a lie. It takes humility to say, you know, I need to bring someone else in. You know, we have this African proverb that says it takes a village to raise a child. You know what? It takes a village to, to support a marriage to raise a child. Often a good marriage takes a whole lot of people. Women need other women to be friends. I mean, it's just an important thing to do. They need, they need, I can't support my wife in some of the emotional ways that she needs support. That's okay. Men need men to grunt and make weird noises that wives just don't understand. I just don't get it, right? God has designed, I believe, places and people to come around marriages. Marriages take many. And, and this doesn't happen overnight. This is, this is this idea that as you bring many into your life, through many different stages of your life, I have to tell you, through many different stages of my life, these kind of things I'm going to share with you, I, by God's grace, and I'll have to say, like I said in the first service, more by my wife, Grace, because of how she so deeply, and I, again, I'll say it, men, women, I think in some way, want intimacy in a way that we don't understand. Would God help us? It's the most important thing you'll ever do. Your job will be over and you'll still be, if God's given you the grace, living with that person. So let me ask you this question I asked the first service and people weren't real, kind of reluctant to raise hands, but I'll ask you this. You'll see. How many have ever used a car mechanic to repair your car? Oh, good. How many have gone to a doctor to get an illness checked out? That should be most everybody, but anyway. How many have sought the wisdom of a financial advisor? You don't need to raise your hands anymore, okay? I'm just going to let you just raise, you know, raise them in your head. How many of you have ever paid for the service of an attorney? Attorney. How many have ever hired a trainer to help you with fitness? It's amazing how all those things are okay. How many have, have actually sought out the advice of a, a, a counselor, an advisor who is very skilled in relational matters and said, you know what, we just want a better marriage? One of the morning shows... Uh, this last week or two had a little segment on where they're asking this question there about marriage and family. They were talking about what I think is critical in our world today is, is this whole question of marriage of a husband and a wife and how they come together and develop the kind of homes they need. And they asked this question as they were talking through this, would you wait until your, your cancer is at stage four before you go to a doctor? How many would wait knowingly at stage four and go, oh, yeah, I'll go in now. And they, were, they made the same question. They asked the same question to, to couples. Why do couples wait till stage four in their marriage pain and difficulties before they actually bring someone in who is a counselor who is wise and do what Proverbs says? Bring in many counselors. It will help you succeed. Counseling is one of those places where the many can make a difference. Um, at three different points in my wife's and our marriage, we've seen, and it doesn't, you know, people go, oh, it's long term, you got to pay for it. No. Three different points for a period of time. And in some cases, I myself went because the things that I needed just to deal with. And it made a difference. Another place is prayer. We have a ministry that we've just begun. It's similar to like Sunshine Corner. It's kind of related to the church in this way. It's called Gateway um, Prayer Ministry. 
And I'll put up there that if you are interested in this, I, we have seen about 37 or 38 people so far at former uh, prayer appointments this week where we meet with people. One of the things we've really found, a lot of it has been around relational stuff. As people come in, as they begin to start open up, and, and it's an incredibly powerful experience as you begin to hear the voice of God in your own heart. And one of the issues that constantly comes up is forgiveness. It amazes me, even in my own life, when I went through one of these sessions uh, about a year ago, there's stuff there that I thought I had dealt with that's still deeper. Our life is like an onion. God keeps peeling things back, and we see layers that are just lower to the surface. And the cross, forgiveness, the most important thing God did for us is the very same thing He says you've got to learn to do for others. Prayer is powerful. We have the prayer time, and we did a video on one of the persons who came up for prayer, and prayer began to activate in their heart and life some things as they open their heart to God. Another place is life groups. What I call these small groups, where people begin to open up their hearts and their lives to people. They begin to share with other couples. And i got to tell you, in our own heart and life, throughout the years of our marriage together, we've had these small groups where we've opened up our lives. And recently, in, 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 involved with the group, there's six of us, and we meet, and we just met yesterday, and we just look at each other and we say, so tell us what's going on in your marriage. And we get really honest. I mean, it, it, is, it is painfully uncomfortable at times when my wife brings these things. Anyway, um, <clears throat> another, another place is classes. We have classes. There's a Sunday morning adult classes to help people get into God's word, to build friendships and relationships. Wednesday night, this Wednesday night is a great opportunity. There's a love and respect class that begins. For some of you, one of your marriage symptoms, it's not the core, but it's a symptom that you think is the core is how you manage money. In a couple of weeks, we'll start that. I, I encourage you to ask these questions. Are there meaningful relationships in your life supporting your marriage? Even if you don't do it as a couple, better as a couple, but even if you need yourself to be involved in it. Are there one or two couples who you can be fully honest with about your marriage struggles? Is there a safe place for you not to complain, not to kind of say that this person did this, but a safe place for you to go and say, what is it? What are the steps that I'm taking that if I began to change this would change all my relationships? Are you taking time to get instruction from God's word? Are you in God's word? And then there's a third, and that's what I call a good relationship requires three. It seems kind of funny to go back to take three, but you know that passage of Scripture that I shared with you in Ecclesiastes chapter 4? It says two are better than one, two are better than one, two are better than one. You know what it says at the very end, verse 12? It makes this statement, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That's not a poetic little thing that God puts in there that he had the writer think about. It's the reality that you need to invite God into this relationship. Keller, again, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says, we are often running on fumes spiritually, but we must know where the fuel station is, and even more important, that it exists. So what is that fuel station? After trying all kinds of other things, he says, one thing that Christ followers, people who follow Jesus, have come to understand, they have learned that the worship of God with their whole heart and the assurance of His love through the work of Jesus Christ is the thing their souls were meant to run on. That's what gets the hearts and their cylinders to fire. And if this is not understood, then we will not have the resources to be good spouses. If we look to our spouses to fill up our tanks, 
in any way that only God can do, we're demanding an impossibility. There is a third strand, and it is that strand that's meant to fill up your tanks. And the key to changing your dance is not changing your partner and catches, nor is it to change your partner. Seriously, with, get that out of there. It is learning to dance first and foremost in step with God, and God will begin to teach you to do the kind of things that will bring about the kind of change that will change the very relationship you're in. And it is vital you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And, you know, and there's a relational reality that I just, just want you to think deeply about. And it's this. If you get intimate with God, seriously intimate with God, you will discover intimacy with others. Now, I want you to think about three commitments that I'm going to ask you to make. And in just a moment, I'm going to have Beth come up, our, one of our lead counselors on staff, and kind of close the service. But I want you to recognize that when we have people up for prayer, um, that will happen after this, and we invite you to be a part of this. But three commitments. A commitment to hard work. Marriage is not some easy kind of thing that some people are really good at and others aren't. These ballroom dancers, they practice as amateurs two hours a day to perfect a one and a half minute competitive dance routine. How in the world do we think by five minutes across the table from each other, we're going to have good marriages? Think about it. We're soul alive. Marriage is hard work. Are you willing to do it? I had a guy who um, I was counseling years ago, and he had just bought a boat like a year and a half before that. It was worth about 20 some thousand dollars. And I was encouraging him to, to go into counseling. He said, well, it's just too expensive. I said, well, what do you want, the boat or your marriage? Like 15 years later, he still has the boat. It's sad. A commitment to personal growth. What will you personally, individually do? What will you look at in yourself? Where will you go to those places where you will be able to hear your heart? Where you'll invite God in? You'll invite the Spirit of God to say, Open my heart to you. Some of you may need to make the first commitment. You've never made this before, where you've never invited Jesus to come into your life, where you recognize that you have um, lived selfishly, that, that you need him, that your sin separates you from him. And he says right now, just he will forgive you if you ask him into your heart. It's the simplest thing. Come into my life. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. And then I call it a commitment to involving others. Hard work, personal growth and all involving. What will you do to invite the many into your life? What does it look like for you? How will God call you to do that?